Well, greetings, friends, and welcome back to Catechesis. In this eighth lesson, we will be considering questions eight and nine of the Baptist Catechism. Question eight asks, are there more gods than one? The answer, there is but one only, the living and true God. And question nine asks, how many persons are there in the Godhead? The answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. First, let us consider question eight, are there more gods than one? Again, the answer, there is but one only, the living and true God. Many of the religions of the world teach that there is more than one God, and it should also be recognized that the Bible does refer to gods in the plural. But according to the scriptures, these gods are not really gods, but are instead the inventions of man. They are idols. Paul the Apostle, addressing the question of whether the Christian should eat food offered to idols, which was a real problem in the early days of the church, says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so Paul says, yes, there are many so-called gods, but they are merely idols. They are the creation of man and have no real existence. And this is to be contrasted with the one true God who is the creator of all things, seen and unseen, who is self-existent, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, as we have learned. This is why our catechism answers the question, are there more gods than one, with the answer, there is but one only, the living and true God. Though men may claim that there are many gods, there is in fact only one. Deuteronomy 6.4 is a very significant verse which establishes the monotheistic teaching of Holy Scripture. There we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Deuteronomy 4.35, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. And in Isaiah 45.13, we read, Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. This is a true confession. Surely there is no other, there is no God besides the God of Israel. He is the living God, our catechism says. Our catechism defines God as being the living God. This is a wonderful way to distinguish the one true God from all other so-called gods. The most fundamental difference between the one true God and other so-called gods is that he is the living God. The God of the Bible, the one true God who made heaven and earth, is alive. And more than being alive, he is life. He is the source of all other life. He is dependent upon no one for his life, but is 
rather self-existent and the giver of all life, just as Paul the Apostle has said, for in him we live and move and have our being. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. All other gods, so-called, are formed by the art and imagination of man. They are not alive. The prophets of Israel would often mock the so-called gods of the nations because of this. The gods that they bowed down to were idols that they fashioned with their hands, and they were not alive. Psalm 115 speaks to this, saying, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols, by contrast, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. That's a wonderful passage there which contrasts the living God who is in heaven with these idols who are not alive. Though they might have the image of creatures, they are not alive. They cannot see nor hear nor speak nor do anything. They are impotent without power. Those who make them become like them, the psalmist says, so do all who trust in them. Jeremiah 10.10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. The God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Christian, is the one true and living God. Question, are there more gods than one? That is the question we are asking. And the answer is, There is but one only, the living and true God. God is called the true God because he is God truly, and not just God in name only or by the opinion of men. God is God even if men and women do not honor him as such. The Bible teaches that there is only one living and true God, as has already been demonstrated. All other gods are gods so-called. They are the inventions of men and are to be regarded as nothing more than dead, dumb, and mute idols. But that there is only one living and true God is also clear from reason. If God is truly infinite, eternal, and unchanging, as we have previously established, then there can only be one such being. Idolatry has always been a problem even for God's people. The human tendency, brothers and sisters, is to make gods for ourselves, gods that we are comfortable with, gods that will serve our interests and advance our causes. The human tendency is to form and fashion gods that resemble the things of this earth somehow. In our culture, it is rather uncommon for men and women to make physical idols for themselves. Our idols in this culture tend to be non-material Our idols are idols of the mind and heart. We are guilty of idolatry any time we reject what the Scriptures reveal concerning God and choose instead to believe something else. For example, many in our culture believe that God is love, which he is. 
but at the same time refuse to believe that he is also holy and just and will, in fact, judge the wicked on the last day. This is a distortion of the true teaching of Scripture regarding God. This is idolatry, therefore. The one who thinks such has carved for themselves a mental image of God which does not correspond to reality. Again, question, are there more gods than one? Perhaps the little ones could answer after me. There is but one only, the living and true God. Question 9 then asks, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And the answer here is that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. Our language truly does creak and groan under the weightiness of discussions regarding the triunity of God. What you will find is that we are not able to say what exactly God is. Instead, we will labor to faithfully say what the scriptures say, that God is three in one, while being very careful to never slip into tritheism or into some other heretical view, as many have done throughout the history of the church. God is one. This has already been established, and it must never be forgotten. There is only one God, and remember that he is simple, meaning that he is not composed of parts. This God is also unchanging. These truths that have already been established are most fundamental. They cannot be denied. As we move on now to discuss the triunity of God, we cannot forget these most fundamental truths. God is one. He is simple not composed of parts. He is unchanging. And yet the scriptures also reveal that God is in some way three. He is Father, Son, or Word, and Holy Spirit. Whenever we speak of God, we must be careful to neither deny his unity while also acknowledging this diversity. And this is difficult for us, for there is nothing in all creation that is quite like him in this regard. There are analogies of the triune God found in creation, but they all break down rather quickly so that never can we say God is exactly like this thing. Some have said that the triune God might be compared to an egg, for example, which is made up of a shell and a white and a yolk. But I hope that you can quickly identify the inadequacy of this analogy. An egg is one, and yet it is composed of three parts. And while it be true that God is three in one, he is not composed of parts. The shell of an egg is not an egg, but is only a part of an egg. But the Son of God, for example, is God, and completely so. While all analogies regarding the triunity of God break down rather quickly so that we cannot say God is exactly like this, It should also be acknowledged that the world is designed in such a way that we might see something of the unity and diversity of God displayed within creation. Consider the human person. You are body and soul, and yet you are one person. There is unity and diversity. Consider the human soul. You have one soul, and yet there is diversity within it, mind, will, and affections. Consider the marriage bond. In marriage, two persons do indeed become one flesh. 
Consider also the unity and diversity that we observe in nature. When you look out over the valley in which we live, you see many trees, and yet there is a diversity of them. You know, though, that this is a tree and that is a tree, though the two trees might differ significantly from one another. Trees are trees, though there be a diversity of trees. Remember how we have said that something of God could be known from our observation of the world that he has made? Well, what I am saying is that the world has been designed in such a way that there is unity and diversity in it. We might reason, therefore, that God is something like that. But the scriptures reveal this most clearly. In the scriptures, we see plainly that God is three in one. And so we confess that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. There are many passages of Scripture that we could point to in support of this claim. Let's simply consider the ones listed as support texts by our Catechism. Concerning the unity of God, we have yet again 1 Corinthians 8.6, which says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. The Christian religion is most fundamentally a monotheistic faith. We believe in one God only. And yet in the scriptures, we also find statements which make it clear that God is three. For example, in John 10, 3, Jesus himself says, I and the Father are one. And a little later in John, Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And listen to the way that Peter speaks of the Holy Spirit in Acts 5, 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And here, the thing to notice is that at first, Peter said that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, but then he said that Ananias lied to God equating God and the Holy Spirit. And then we also have those passages which refer to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at once. For example, in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul gives this benediction, saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. As I have said, many more passages could be cited, but this is going to have to suffice for now, for this is a very short lesson. In just a moment, I will conclude by reading chapter 2, paragraph 3 of our confession, the Second London Confession. It provides a more robust statement concerning the triunity of God. And I would encourage you to read all of chapter 2 of our confession, which is only three paragraphs long. You can do this on your own time. And perhaps it would be good for you to also read some of the creeds of the early church to see the care that those early Christians took to speak accurately concerning the triune nature of God. It would be good for you to grow familiar with the language that they used, which helped them to not slip into heretical doctrines. Particularly, I'm thinking of the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. You can find those online quite easily. 
Uh, read them carefully and, and see, again, the care that they took to speak accurately concerning God. If you are familiar with those creeds, then you will notice that what our confession says regarding God is rooted in those much older Orthodox statements. Second London Confession, chapter 2, paragraph 3 says, In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. Notice that our catechism uses the word persons. Either is fine. I think subsistences is actually a little bit of a better term to use. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. Friends, the doctrine of the Trinity, much like the doctrine of God's simplicity or eternality and immutability, is difficult for the human mind to comprehend. Nevertheless, we must confess it as true, for the Word of God reveals it. Our confession is right to say that this doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. Did you hear that statement? So just because God is incomprehensible, just because our minds find it very difficult, even impossible, to fully comprehend the Trinity. Still, we say that this doctrine is foundational. It is the foundation of all our communion with God and our comfortable dependence upon Him. Tell me, friends, how did you come to have your sins forgiven and to be reconciled to God? Was it not the will of God the Father and by the activity of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, did not the Father send the Son to accomplish your salvation, and the Son send the Spirit to apply it to you? And this is why our confession says that our communion with God, our right relationship with Him, our comfortable dependence upon Him is founded upon the activity of God, who is triune. Well, though much more could be said, uh, this is going to have to do for now. Until next time, Abide in Christ.